Bones Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood. Hello, I'm Andrea Catherwood and welcome to the latest in the Rathbones Look Forward series where I'm talking to some of the great writers, thinkers and journalists of our time focusing on the future of our changing world. Today we're focusing on the future of engineering with Lord John Brown, the former CEO of BP and an influential leader in the energy business. His latest book, Make, Think, Imagine, tells the story of engineering's impact on civilization, both good and bad, and argues that we need not and must not put the brakes on technological advance. Lord Brown, welcome. Thank you very much for being here to talk to us today. I'd like to start by asking you, I know you said that one of the reasons that you wrote your recent book, Make, Think, Imagine, is because you sort of get frustrated with people who think that civilization is built on, you know, art and history and literature. So many of us have had a kind of a classic liberal arts education. Why do you believe that civilization was really founded on engineering? I've spent a lot of time involved with uh, the arts and culture. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized it all existed on a platform. Uh, It's a modern word, but a platform uh, which is built on practical things, Uh, whether that is at the start of civilization with the hand axe, which changed what we ate, uh, right through to today, which I had the privilege of going to NASA to see the about-to-be-launched deep space telescope, the James Webb Telescope, Uh, which is going to be launched a million miles away from the Earth to look very close to the beginning of time. And I thought these two things were bookends based on engineering that allowed us to be who we are. And of course, it allowed me as well to define engineering. I take a very broad view of engineering, which is it's a bit like Janus. It has two faces and one head, looks to uh, what goes on in the laboratory the fruits of discovery on the one hand, and on the other hand, what humanity wants to do with that, very often tested by the market, but not always tested by the market. And these are products. These are things which are very practical. And that, I think, is how civilization carries on. It, it, it thinks about things, makes things. And yet, at the moment, there does seem to be quite a palpable fear of technology you know, around robots creating unemployment, AI taking away jobs, um, privacy disappearing down the plug hole as machines around us know everything about what we're doing, you know, the, the joy of the Internet of Things and the fear of it. I wonder how you try and address the kind of public's fear of unfettered technologies that, that may well make sense to engineers, but do we need to broadly try and get rid of that fear? And if so, how do we do that? In this case, history really does rhyme. When uh, people went on the railways, they were very worried that if they went at speeds faster than walking, it would cause madness because the brain would be scrambled. So there's plenty of fear everywhere with the new. Uh, Today, I think it's heightened by hype, uh, partly because people want their 15 minutes of fame And you absolutely have to make very strong statements to be noticed. So in addition to the natural fear of the new, it's heightened by people saying, my product will do something amazing. It will get rid of all labor, which is just not true. Robots will not take away our our jobs. 
AI is a very specific, highly specialized activity. The list goes on and on. So I think we need to spend more time communicating, more time explaining, and the less time saying to people, well, it's really a black box, you know, and the black box does great stuff and trust it because nobody trusts black boxes. Everybody trusts things that other people like them would talk to them about. I know you also think, and I think this plays into it, that there should be greater sort of imagination in planning and in design. Tell us about why this is important, that um, our, we all have a, an aesthetic and emotional response to engineering. So I think the most interesting example is what I heard from a great architect called Alejandro Aravena. And uh, he has been building parts of cities where he builds public housing, where only half a house is built. And the other half is built and designed by the person who gets the house. I remember when I lived in the States, it was very often the case that people had a new built house, but the basement was always unfinished. And that was designed as the family room, and the family could do what they want. So this is about human design. It's about not taking all the decisions away from people and making humanity design what they need. And that's what engineering can do for you. At the other extreme, of course, it's to produce goods where the function of the goods bears no relationship to its form. So the, I think the iPhone or the smartphone is a real example of that. It doesn't look like a phone. It's a, it's a beautifully sleek piece of uh, engineering, uh, but it does amazing things. Thomas Heatherwick here in the UK as well has built a bridge which there wasn't enough space for a bridge. So when it is not needed, it uh, rolls up into a ball. Uh, So you look at a ball and it becomes a bridge and a bridge becomes a ball. That's what engineering can do for you. It's an amazing, the wonderful use of space and it looks beautiful too. Now, when we think about these amazing infrastructure projects, very often They need vision and they need time. And if they are to be government-funded, they often need a government, perhaps, that isn't in a very short-term political cycle. Uh, Putting aside our current turmoil, almost every government is thinking about short-termism and they are trying to win an election. It must be very difficult to really... I mean, look at the trouble around HS2, for example. You know, when you're looking at a long-term infrastructure, the kind of infrastructure projects that perhaps we need here. How do you work out how we go forward and build big, grand infrastructure projects when we're looking at a short-term political cycle? So some of our infrastructure projects, of course, uh, things like uh, the mobile phone and the mobile phone structure have been built on the basis of very good regulation and incentives by governments, uh, which has caused the market to fund them. So it's a combination of the public good. Uh, I'm all in favor of uh, service public, the ability to build things which are good for everybody, but also, I think, the market working. So we need, I think, to step back and ask ourselves, which bits can the market do and which bits must the government do? The government's always there when the common good is being served. I I think we've made too many one-off decisions you know, for example, HS2, a very interesting project, but probably we needed capacity, not speed. The distance was too short. 
if we're going a thousand kilometers or 500 kilometers, I'm all in favor of speed. But here we probably needed capacity, not speed, and, and it had to be thought through very carefully. So I think it's uh, about uh, planning. I'm not a great fan of pure central planning. Uh, I recall the Soviet Union's problems with that. But I am in favor of broad planning, which says there are some things we have to get done. Who gets to do them? How do we get the market to do some? And we, as the government, get to do other bits. When you look at Britain today and the sort of the state of engineering and technology in the UK, how do you feel about it? I mean, I know that we're, we can't match for scale what's happening in China, in the US, even Japan and, and South Korea. But are you excited by the kind of technology and the kind of engineering that you see in the UK? I'm excited by the potential. So we have a very good and very strong basis for research and discovery. And very often we take those things and we make products from them. Sometimes we don't spend enough time honing those products down to the things we really need. And so entrepreneurs, company owners sell their companies prematurely. For example, we've invented four of the greatest AI companies, including DeepMind, in the world. AI is a very important thing for the future. Probably overhyped, but very important nonetheless. All of those four companies were sold to American holding companies probably before their time. So again and again, we look at engineered products in this country and we find that we've developed them, but we haven't really developed them for world-scale application. They've gone elsewhere. Whether do do that's we have the, the scale to do that in this country? I mean, presumably they're being sold. You know, if they, if they, if they start up in Cambridge or wherever else, they then get sold because people feel like, Okay, I'm going to I'm going to cash Absolutely. in now. I'm going to take the I don't have the resources to create this on a global scale. I think anything that is really good gets resources. It's the test, you know, and you can get them. We have fantastic capital markets here. Uh, we have enormous pension funds that want to do something. Uh, there is no reason if we present the products properly, we should be able to get them funded here. I'd like to move on to talk to you a little bit about responsibility and the kind of responsibility that engineers have, particularly today, for the social impact of the things that they create. I mean, we talk a lot about Facebook's responsibility. It would like to consider itself very much simply a platform. Regulators are looking at it as a publishing house. But more than that, when you think about the, the emotional impact that, that um, social media has on people, on individuals... Um, should engineers have thought more about that? Do they bear more responsibility for what they create? Engineers clearly should. Uh, it's very easy to say, well, we can do it, so let's do it. We should say, Let, we can do it, should we do it? But it's not just engineers. It's the structure around engineering firms and around engineers that should test and inquire whether everything's been thought through properly. And what I mean by everything is the stakeholder impact. You know, what impact are you having on the world as a whole, on your, on your community? Uh, and that can be judged not just by engineers, but by people who have a wider and broader, perhaps wiser, approach to the world. And that's about governance. It's about governance at the supervisory level, at the board level, uh, it's about regulation, and of course, ultimately, it's about the law. 
all these things need to be in sync. Uh, and I think merely to get away with it, to say I'm a simple engineer, is actually to begin to gnaw away uh, from the credibility of engineering. At the end of the day, somebody has to put in the framework. I mean, is that, we, we talked a little bit before about how, you know, you would prefer to see less, not, not too much central planning, but this perhaps is an area where we need to see some kind of regulation. How on earth you do that globally, I, I don't know. I, I'm very keen on regulation, uh, good regulation, and I think because it represents the way in which the stakeholders think. And you have to capture that. Now, you have to test it to make sure it's not excessive and that it isn't actually a dogmatic approach uh, rather than an experimental approach based on uh, what people are really thinking. But I think wise regulation is great. We're never going to get global regulation. I think uh, the idea of global government is, is something that I think we're past now. So we have to hope that they're in sync and that uh, communication and competition Competition's a very good thing to put regulation into sync. That will do it. But it will not be in sync everywhere. We know that partly because the values of the stakeholders in different parts of the world are very different. I want to talk to you a little bit about technology and security. For example, facial recognition sounds like an incredible development from purely an engineering point of view. And it can be very beneficial, of course, for, for law enforcement. And then you consider, for example, what's happening in China, where the, the, the Muslim uh, minority community, the Uyghurs, are experiencing the Chinese government imposing facial recognition. And of course, there's a fear, isn't there, for many people that that is a step too far. And we worry and we wonder about what will be done with all of that. Do you think that it feels like technology can sometimes make the world feel less secure? This is an example, one of many examples of intended and unintended consequences. I don't think anybody who was designing facial recognition uh, said, let's do this to discriminate against a type of person. They actually did it to create convenience. And when we open an iPhone, or when now, when we probably go through an airport soon, where no documents will be needed, you will simply be let in and out based on facial recognition. We all like that. Very convenient, very good stuff. On the other side, it can be used in the hands of those who have, as far as we are concerned, our value system, malign intent, uh, for bad things. And we don't approve, I think, of, uh, at least I don't, approve of people being discriminated against and identified on their faces uh, so that bad things can happen to them. That's happened in the past too often. And we need to say what we think about that. It may not change what one nation does within their borders, and we're not going to stop it by sitting on the technology. It, it doesn't work like that nowadays. It's interesting. So that's an example of technology that we can easily see why it would be really useful, as you say, uh, going through passport control, even if it's just opening your iPhone. I know that at Stanford University, they develop technology that can recognize to quite a high probability whether people are gay or straight. And you wonder, why was that technology invented? What's the, what's the benefit? I mean, I think that we would worry about downsides in certain countries of how that could be used, perhaps. I'm not sure I can see the upside. 
I think there's no upside whatsoever, and it's a completely wrong application of an engineered product. I, I say that as a gay man, and I particularly uh, object to this. I hope it was simply an experiment to demonstrate how bad things could be in the hands of bad people. Uh, and I think we just have to be very cautious uh, sometimes with what applications things are used for. It doesn't mean to say we have to throw out or stop engineering. Sometimes, you know, the solutions to getting engineering to go back to its in intended consequence is not less engineering, it's more engineering. It's actually to stop things being used to build in protections that stop uh, uh, technologies being used inappropriately. Now, you're the chair of the, of the UK board of the Chinese company Huawei, and that is the world leader in 5G technology, another amazing forefront of technological engineering. There are a lot of concerns that have been expressed about um, the security of Huawei's 5G equipment and concerns that if it's implemented here, that it might somehow undermine the security of the UK government. How comfortable do you feel as the chair of Huawei in the UK, that what this company is doing is going to be purely beneficial to the UK and in no way undermine the security? I, I feel very comfortable because the UK has taken some very wise steps to put in some checks and balances and to decide exactly where Huawei's technology will be applied and where it won't be applied. So very simply, there are three, three levels, the core uh, the middle bit and the periphery. Uh, Huawei is going to be excluded and has excluded itself for many years from the core. But in the, the middle bit, which is the wires, and the periphery, which is the aerials, uh, they're very good at that. Uh, and that's something uh, that will accelerate the application of 5G here and will also, I may say in a different mode, accelerate broadband application. Without Huawei, this is going to be, uh, take a long time. And there is no evidence that Huawei has ever used any of this for bad purposes. It's just that people worry, that, well, maybe we should take a precaution you never know in the future. But I think if you keep them out of the core, which is what's been done, uh, I think Huawei will do a very good job. After all, they do own 21% of the world patents on 5G. Without Huawei, nobody can do anything. There is something of a conundrum here, though, isn't there? Because if you're convinced that they're not a security risk at all and that they've never done anything that could be considered a security risk, why keep them out of the core? Oh, because of precaution. Uh, I think uh, many people in the security business, I, I, I've never been in the security business, but I've had plenty of advisors, and they always say we should take precautions. In the end, of course, if you take all precautions, you take no risk, Therefore, you do nothing, and that may itself be a risk as well. So uh, it, you have to measure and judge where you feel comfortable. In the case of the UK, there is an oversight board for Huawei, which is a combination of representatives of GCHQ, uh, the National Security Center, and also Huawei, that supervises what they do. Uh, I think that probably should supervise everybody, in my view. You never know who brings a risk from where. There has been a lot of pushback politically for this. Do you think that it's something that will go through? It's impossible to say. I think it should go through. Would it go through? It all depends. I think uh, there's a broader issue, which is uh, 
the competition for dominance in engineered products. The U.S. has always been dominant. It's had a, a dogma, it's had a determination, a doctrine of uh, engineering superiority ever since the Sputnik problem, uh, and uh, it wishes to continue there. How that will work for the future remains to be seen. But this is, I think, I can comment on, I think, the technical and business side. The political side is in the hands of the politicians. I'd like to move on to talk to you about the environment. It's the great challenge of our age, climate change. And in 1997, when you were CEO of BP, you were really an early voice talking about the danger of fossil fuels, to which engineers, of course, had contributed. And many of us hope that engineers are going to be the ones that are going to solve the climate emergency. Do you think that you and your colleagues should have pushed the agenda harder earlier? I wish we could have pushed it harder. I was ready to push it as hard as we could go. Uh, and many people said I pushed it too hard, uh, actually, simply pushed it too hard. Did you find there was a lot of political pushback at the time? There was a lot of, well, yes, there was. There was a lot of pushback politically and industrially. People said, what a good idea. Why don't we get round to it later? And so it was, as far as many people were concerned, they were simply kicking the can down the road, hoping for the best. Uh, and, and actually, as you kick the can down the road, of course, it got worse, not better. So uh, I believe I pushed it as hard as I could. I got BP to not just say they were going to do things, but actually do things, had very specific targets. Those targets are still good today, were real actions to be taken. And I'm pleased to see that people are now coming round to it. Whether we've left it too late depends on the response we now undertake. I wonder if you think that engineers will actually be able to come up with solutions that are not just about cutting back, but actually about creating ways of capturing carbon, etc., that are going to give us hope. I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, to demand that people cut back, you will have obviously a two-track world. Uh, I remember the former Prime Minister of India, Mohammed Singh, saying uh, that in his view, every human had an equal entitlement to the atmosphere. And the subtext was, we in the West have already had our entitlement. So we need, I think, to think about this as what can we do to help make this happen in the future? Can we get rid of carbon and the other greenhouse gases? If you look at the engineering systems we have today, we have everything we need available right now. So we can do it. The question is, how much will it cost? And some of these technologies, some of these engineering systems are primitive today. But if we get on and we start applying it, they, one law in engineering is the more you do, the cheaper it becomes and the better it becomes. Look at solar panels, look at anything. So we need incentives to do that. And the way I think of incentives today is that we need to tax carbon heavily in order to make it worthwhile to do something with it rather than let it go into the atmosphere. Carbon capture and storage and utilization, uh, for example. Uh, more renewables, more nuclear, possibly. So the tax, I think, should not be something that Mr. Macron had a bad experience with, but a tax which is not about getting government revenue, 
was simply about redistribution. So tax everybody, send it back to the population in a progressive, not a regressive way. After all, energy taxes are always regressive because they represent a fixed amount generally of most people's budget. I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about that because it sounds fascinating. I mean, you're talking about perhaps not taxing salaries, but taxing people's own carbon use as opposed to companies or or governments. I think you tax the products, Mm -hmm. but then you get rebates back uh, and you tax producers. I I think this is where the detail has to happen. In the end, of course, it's about the use of carbon, but there are various stages in the use. It's a bit like VAT. It, It happens at different places. So... People who produce uh, hydrocarbons need to pay one of the tax. People who produce uh, CO2, making electricity or uh, steel or, or cement, they need to pay as well. And indeed, uh, people who use gasoline, diesel, they need to pay also. But the taxes are not made onerous on the poorer parts of uh, society simply because you get a rebate probably you get a significant rebate uh, for what is going on elsewhere. And I think that would work. In fact, I'd go to say, so far as to say, if we don't do this sort of thing, we're not really going to get what done what we need to get done. You've set up um, the world's largest renewable energy fund. It's a $10 billion investment uh, to help to prove the economic arguments for renewables. But you're also chair of a fracking company and you're also chair of a gas uh, investment company, L1 Energy, in the oil business. So how do you square all of that? Well, I'm no longer chairman of the fracking company, uh, but uh, the fracking company was designed to produce natural gas. uh, And the company I chair at the moment produces 70% natural gas and 30% oil. Natural gas is one of the better hydrocarbons, it's the best actually, in that it produces less carbon for every unit that's burnt. So if we could replace all the coal burn in the world with uh, gas burn, we'd go a significant distance to beginning to solve our problem with CO2. Not the whole way, but some of the way. So I think it's one part of the solution The thing is in this area is everybody says, but there must be an answer. There is no single answer. uh, There's no magic bullet. There's a series of things you have to do. And that's what makes it difficult to explain. In the end, our objective is reduce severely CO2, carbon dioxide going to the atmosphere, and stop methane, which is leaked natural gas going into the atmosphere. Both are bad. And how does nuclear power fit into that? Well, nuclear is, uh, of course, has other problems to do with waste and security uh, and cost as well. Uh, As people see uh, concerns with Fukushima, uh, as uh, people see even a a box set, Chernobyl, uh, they worry about good, good and bad decisions with nuclear power. Nuclear power can be made safe. It can be made cheaper, provided we rethink how we do it. And I'm quite keen that we at least try and experiment with and really drive down the costs of small-scale nuclear plants, which are made in factories, and they're all made the same, and then delivered to a site to be used. The site is not your garden. It is a secure site, 
where there would have otherwise been a very big nuclear power station. And that may solve a problem. It may actually get the cost down. When I talk about the learning curve in uh, engineering, about the only thing which the learning curve does not apply to is large-scale nuclear power plants, which seem to get more expensive the more you, you that build seems rather to be than the less. what's happened in the UK at the exactly. moment anyway. Yeah. Uh, now in your book, you also talk about hydrogen-based cars. It, it sounds quite sci-fi and fanciful, but then lots of things have happened, uh, certainly in my lifetime, that I would never have expected. How realistic do you think it is that, that these, and indeed electric cars, are going to replace diesel and petrol? And, and what kind of timescale are we looking at? There'll be a mix. Obviously, hydrogen-based buses are reasonably well-known uh, in many uh, big cities, uh, and they're very clean, but they're filled up with hydrogen, which comes from primarily bottles, uh, and very expensive too. But as time goes by, there'll be better ways of making hydrogen uh, much more cheaply. There'll be better ways of making electric cars, again, making them inexpensive so that people can actually afford to buy them and making them last longer. People are worried about whether the batteries we use today uh, will last long enough for the cars to have resale value. So I believe these problems will be solved. And what we'll see is a mixing up of the so-called car fleet. So there will be petrol cars, gasoline cars, there will be diesel cars left, electric cars, cars based on biofuels, uh, you know, primarily ethanol, uh, and also uh, hydrogen cars. So there'll be a, a mix. Uh, I do think uh, we need to look carefully at what mix we really want and think of the unintended consequences of all of this. After all, diesel, which was heavily promoted uh, both by the oil industry and by the government, has turned out to have some bad unintended consequences. And so we need to stop that. We need to think carefully. If we have a lot of electric cars, let's please make sure that the electricity is generated in a green way. Otherwise, we are really duping ourselves. Mm. So I suppose this leads me to the, the big question, the main question, is do you think that we can reduce our emissions fast enough to avoid these terrifying, frankly, scenarios that we know could happen if we don't actually manage to stay within these limits and bring them down? If we, uh, this is a global problem. You know, I'm, I'm certain that the UK can, as a small island, reduce its uh, emissions. But if nobody else does anything, so what? So I, I think we need to all get a move on. We really do. Time is definitely ticking. And I think right now, uh, for the very first time, I see populations around the world beginning to push politicians to do something about this. And that's what's needed because all the rhetoric in the world is not going to work. People need to see the consequences or the potential glimpse of the consequences of not doing something about carbon dioxide. Whether that is warmer oceans creating more ferocious uh, weather, whether it is uh, changes in the climate so that agricultural land no longer is agricultural, or that fish die in the oceans, or the uh, coral reefs disappear. For one reason or another, these things are beginning to register with people, and that's a good thing. But we have to be practical. In the end, 
energy is the thing that keeps all of us going. It gives people aspiration for those who are not as fortunate as we are. And we have to do that. 86% of our energy comes from hydrocarbons. We can't switch it off. It would be good if we could, but we can't. So we now need to work very diligently and speedily to get rid of the carbon from hydrocarbons. Just finally, do you think, and it sounds to me listening to you that you don't think that the the, the worst case scenario is overblown? If we don't do anything, really, it's not scaremongering. This is a very serious position we would put ourselves in. I don't want to run the experiment to that conclusion. There's all sorts of probabilities of the mean temperature of the sea and the land going up in ways that give us uh, results or consequences that we don't understand. And we therefore should be very prudent about what we do now. I'm just a, a great believer that the human race does not purposefully harm itself on a global basis. Uh, we have to now do something about this. Uh, and as I say, we have the engineering products and processes to do something. So we need to get on. I'd like to talk to you now about health tech for a moment. I know that you went around the world interviewing many of the leading experts in these fields of technology. And one person that you spoke about with a lot of excitement, I felt, was uh, Robert Langer. Can you tell us a little bit about Robert's world, uh, Robert's work, rather, in this world of, kind of big health tech and the innovations that, that I think you feel are game-changing? Bob Langer is uh, an engineer who it took him ages to get a, a post uh, in a hospital because most people said, well, you're an engineer, not a, a medic. Uh, but he's applied his engineering to some extraordinary things. In fact, uh, their most extraordinary result is that from his laboratory, some 25 billion US dollars worth of companies have uh, been formed. So he, I, I think if I could probably misdescribe his work, it, he wants to target tumors in the body, for example, and rather than pollute the entire bloodstream uh, with uh, chemotherapies, He'd like to float something along the bloodstream, think of it as a river, uh, and get to a tumor and hit the tumor very specifically. So a lot of his work is associated with that and with uh, very tiny uh, devices that can go up the bloodstream and even test out different chemotherapies on tumors and be recovered and tested so that things can be targeted much more. When you do an interview, I realized that one of the best things is when you finish the interview, when someone says there's just one more thing or says something to you. And Bob, uh, as we were leaving his lab, he said, you know, my purpose in life is just to reduce suffering. And I thought to myself, that's what I wanted. You're also chairman of the Francis Crick Institute, which does of similar types of work. Can you just tell us a little bit about what that does? So the Francis Crick Institute is very much a discovery institute. We uh, discover things and we're looking at fundamental biological processes. Think of this question. Many people are working on how to help cancers go away. We're trying to work out why they happen. Uh, and if we can really discover that, then we're probably better able to figure out how to cure them. So 
uh, it is a, a remarkable thing that I, as a non-medic, I've discovered that we understand that smoking definitely causes lung cancer. We have no idea how that mechanism works, apparently. So after all this time. So it's understanding mechanisms, and we do that for cancers. We do it for a variety of other diseases, influenza, for example. Uh, and we use very high-end technology, uh, amazing pieces of engineering to help make these discoveries, but most importantly, an outstanding set of people. We have in one building, uh, we have, uh, we have uh, one Nobel laureate running the place, uh, several Nobel laureates on our advisory board, 25 fellows of the Royal Society, to name but few. Uh, things and it means that we have the some greatest the greatest brains in one place focused on one set of problems so we i think through technology you feel that we should be quite optimistic about the future of health it's an area in which we can see quite rapid progression there is no doubt i think craig venter uh, who was one of the people who was quite inspirational and instrumental in getting the hum human genome sequenced, still reminds me when I talk to him that he says, as far as I'm concerned, he says uh, medicine's still in the medieval age, but it's better than the Stone Age. Uh, there's a long way to go, and the most exciting things are combinations of biology, medicine, and big ultra-big data. And that's a very exciting combination, which could one day allow us to really understand what's wrong with somebody with a higher degree of probability than we understand today, and perhaps even forecast what might be wrong with them in the future and take steps to stop that. So there are some very exciting things going on. One area of tech that we all see around us all the time, of course, is the mobile phone. And when we look at children, there are quite a lot of statistics about the the, the sort of warnings and the danger that mental ill health can come from children under five being essentially addicted to mobile phones, to tablets. With everything in our mobile world and our social networks changing so fast, how do we support our children to use technology responsibly, particularly when many parents don't really do so themselves, and I, I, I would take that on board as my own personal flaw. But it is it's very difficult, isn't it, to work out what we do with a generation who are going to grow up essentially surrounded by this technology, and we don't know what that's like. Well, they will, like every generation, be different. Uh, I think people were concerned about watching too much television and giving you square eyes. Mm -hmm. uh, they were concerned about uh, Sony... PlayStation, I think, and too many video games causing a simplistic view of life. And now we worry about addiction to communication with the iPhone. I think uh, connectivity has had both positive uh, benefits, convenience, the ability to speak to friends, also negative. It's uh, balkanized people, so special interest groups can get together malign intent as well as benign intent. Uh, but I think all of this has to be put back in the hands of educators. We need to help people by just talking about the consequences of doing too much of anything. You know, moderation here, the ability to judge is something that comes with time. 
and it's both what happens in the home, what happens in the school, uh, that will probably make this work out okay in the long term. There'll always be bumps in the road here. Do you think that there are things that computers will simply never be able to do, or is it just a matter of time before we are going to get computers that can think and forecast more abstractly as humans can? So this is a question that very much is in the minds of people who talk about AI and talk about robots. First, I think AI has been around for a very long time. Uh, It was very in a very primitive way used in the Second World War to get people and equipment and airfields all coordinated to set send off bombing raids. So uh, it's been around, uh, and I think what we need to remember is that AI is a series of techniques which have been made very powerful by big hardware, huge computers, big uh, cheap memory systems, all of which exist in the so-called cloud. So nobody notices them, but this is the result of 50 years of amazing development of engineering. So it's all been made powerful, but it's nothing like the brain. Uh, The brain is a very complex thing. We don't understand it. We're merely scratching its surface. Probably we, we, we hardly understand a mouse's brain. We understand something about a fruit fly's brain. Uh, but a human brain has more synapses in than all the uh, connections in all the computers added up in the entire world. And that's just one brain. So AI is a special applications and there'll be more and more of them. They won't substitute the brain. The brain has some very unusual techniques uh, of of understanding, particularly what your experience is. Robots, I think, have been around a long time. They're now much more user-friendly. Even in a a factory, uh, they're used to uh, enhance a human's experience. For example, in a car manufacturing company, n- normally for slightly more expensive cars, you, you you order your own, and so they end up making millions of individual models. That's done by humans and robots working together. And will robots take away routine work? Of course they will. Uh, does that mean that the work week will get shorter? Probably yes. Uh, after all, 120 years ago, it was about 70 hours. Now it's 35 hours. And what's wrong with it being smaller than that? Actually, what it's really wrong to suggest that we don't keep developing in this area. Of course, there has to be a very big change in social structure. We can't expect people to have the same pay per hour for half the hours. It doesn't work like that uh, and hasn't worked right. So things need to change. But I think all of these things just change the way we live. It doesn't change the way that humans are, because humans are exceptional. They have uh, something called imagination, uh, and that is something which is the unique defining characteristic, I believe, of a human, the imagination. I think the other thing is that imagination allows us to be empathetic, Uh, And as time goes on, I think we need more people in empathetic-type activity than we do today. Looking after a a population that might get a bit older, 
uh, looking after people who have problems to do with the speed of change in the world. All of that needs an empathetic uh, touch, and the humans are the only people who can do that. Thank you so much indeed. That was absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Thank you. Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood.